This week's TribCast is sponsored by Good Reason Houston is an education nonprofit that is leading a citywide effort to improve public school quality. Get involved at goodreasonhouston.org. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas Incorporated is dedicated to creating access to health care for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for December 3rd, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week I am joined by uh, Health and Human Services reporter Karen Harper. Hello. Energy and Economy reporter Mitchell Furman. Hey there. And Politics reporter James Badagan. Hello. Hello. Thank you all for joining me. Um, so we are in the first month of December, and I think if we're going to take anything away from this trip cast, it's that the worries and challenges of 2021 are probably going to continue into 2022, unfortunately. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about the power grid. We're going to talk a little bit about the Omicron uh, variant. But uh, first, I want to talk about the grid. We are, as I said, entering December. It, it is currently 70 degrees outside, so we're not too stressed about the power grid today. But we do know that, you know, winter is approaching and uh, that means it's time to start thinking about, you know, what happened in February and whether it could possibly happen again. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott last week uh, seemed pretty confident in his assessment when he was asked by a TV station about his confidence in the power grid. He told reporters that he can guarantee the lights will stay on. But ERCOT, our power grid operator, maybe a little bit less so in a risk assessment last month, they found they considered five extreme risk scenarios for the winter. Four of those the agency predicted would trigger outages for Texas residents. Uh, none of those scenarios, if I am understanding them correctly, were as serious as the winter storm in 2020. We saw during that storm power demand being 77 megawatts, and the peak demand considered by ERCOT in their assessments was 73 megawatts. So, you know, Mitchell, I, you know, it's worth noting as we consider that 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 earlier this year, this year's winter storm was a pretty extreme scenario. You know, I don't think we would expect snow to be on the ground in Austin, Texas for a week, you know, every winter. But of course, there are winter storms every year in the state of Texas and and the grid needs to be ready for it. Your reporting has kind of consistently found that Texas hasn't done enough to guarantee what Greg Abbott is guaranteeing, that the lights will stay on this winter. So what what is it that's missing? What hasn't happened here to to make make that guarantee a a, a sure bet? Yeah, uh, the state's natural gas system uh, has not been prepared to the degree that energy experts and power companies think that it should um, in order to withstand an extreme winter storm to the degree that happened last year um, or earlier this year. Uh, Power, a lot of a lot of power plants uh, that send energy onto the grid are are fueled by natural gas. 
and uh, and uh, and a big issue in in February during the storm was that a lot of those power plants were not receiving the natural gas uh, in order to in order to run. Uh, we toured a, a power plant in Midlothian uh, that's owned by Vistra, uh, the state's largest power generation company. And the the CEO, Kurt Morgan, has been in the energy industry for forty years, and he is very concerned about the the natural gas not getting to his power plant in Midlothian and a dozen other of his power plants that run on natural gas in Texas uh, if if extreme weather were to hit. Uh, we we saw a federal a federal report uh, came out from a couple major energy regulators uh, recently that kind of was definitive about um, that freezing issues were were a major piece of the of the of the failures in February. And and the the legislature kind of did not exactly uh, make natural gas quickly prepare their facilities for winter weather. They they have a lot of time. There's still a long process for regulators to to figure that out. And as we know, uh, natural gas, oil and gas in Texas funds a, a majority of political campaigns uh, for governors, lawmakers, the railroad commissioners themselves that, that regulate the oil and gas industry. So, so, you know, they, they can kind of, uh, do what they want and, and preparing their, their infrastructure for extreme weather is a costly process. Uh, and, and they might not be, uh, wanting to do that, uh, to spend that kind of money for, for, a for an event that may not happen frequently. Yeah, and you had a great story for us that ran on Monday, kind of laying out the situation. And, and you mentioned touring that plant, and you described kind of the efforts that the plant had taken to weatherize, you know, insulating pipes and and all the other different things. Um, I believe, you know, much of that, which was required by the state after this incident. But ultimately, the point being made was it doesn't matter if you weatherize the plant if the fuel that runs the plant can't get there, right? And, and that's the challenge here. So your story, one of the big things that it focused on was kind of the loophole in the state laws that were passed during this most, you know, during this recent legislative session that kind of allowed this vulnerability to remain. Can you tell us a little bit about what those loopholes are and how they work? Yeah. So, so essentially the, the, the gas industry, um, the, the, the lawmakers created a, a series of processes that have to happen before they even make the weather, the, the standards for weatherization, which is the process of preparing the, for, for extreme weather. And, uh, that process takes a long time laid out in the legislation, the legislation says that that process would not happen until most likely 2023 at the earliest, um, unless unless the process moves faster than the legislation calls for. Um, there are a series of steps they need to. Uh, there is a new committee, a committee that was created that needs to map out all of the gas infrastructure in Texas, and then and that map is not due until September of 2022. Uh, so you know. At the bare minimum, there right now, as we're talking on December third, there are no there are no weatherization standards for natural gas producers in Texas, uh, and and so you know that 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 process will will probably will almost definitely bleed into 
2023, according to the legislation. Um, another piece of that, of, of, of that so-called loophole that, that lawmakers were kind of, especially Texas senators were, were hammering the Railroad Commission for this fall. Um, during the storm, prior to the storm in February, there a, a lot of dozens of, of natural gas companies failed to fill out paperwork that would have stopped their electricity from getting cut off during the storm. But that's what happened. The, the, their electricity got cut off. They could not produce gas. Uh, and there were, there were also compounding issues, right? Freezing and, and other weather-related issues. But their power got cut off uh, because they did not fill out paperwork that would have designated their facilities as critical. And that when you're designated as critical, that lets that lets the the that informs the the powers that be to not cut off your electricity in an emergency. Um, but their their power was cut off. So so the railroad the railroad commission uh, just this week uh, changed that um, changed that to to kind of make sure that people do fill out those forms and 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 do designate themselves as critical. But these companies could also let the railroad commission know that they are not prepared to operate in an extreme situation and not be designated as critical and they don't have to then you know they're they're kind of absolved from that process um however we'll we'll see you know once the weatherization standards are actually written and put in place they, they might be required to to weatherize at a later date Hey, Mitchell, that when they opt out, it's like a $150 fee that they have to pay, which I think you pointed out in stories and then I pointed out in some stories. And uh, the people are not happy with that because these are like multi-million, some of them are multi-billion dollar companies and it's a $150 charge. Like that's that's what we're paying for, like what vehicle registration fees. Um, I think that it's barely a traffic. Yeah, I, I, thought, <laughs> I thought that was uh, pretty, pretty noteworthy. And, and the people... Uh, in our in our Twitter reactions, I think we're we're definitely pointing that out. Yeah, yeah, no, I gotta. I well, I was gonna say. I mean, you know, this is this is a another aspect of your story, Mitchell. I mean, the this is a situation where the Railroad Commission, in particular, but also the state legislature, um, get a lot of money from the. There is a very cozy relationship between the oil and gas industry. And you know the regulators and the lawmakers in this state, and it's hard to look at that, you know, the the, the weak penalties or the, the the loopholes created in the law, and not wonder whether that cozy relationship might be responsible for some of it. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I mean, if you like, I, I cover the railroad commission, and just listening to to the words they use, uh, com- railroad commissioner Christy Craddock, uh, she she often in talking about the the oil and gas industry she'll she'll talk about she'll she'll say my operators right she uses like possessive words it's it's kind of bizarre and uh it's it's you know it, it's also a, an agency that's elected statewide right and so that's also kind of different from some other from many other state agencies yep yeah. And, you know, you and Aaron very soon after this storm kind of wrote about how when the power went out, a lot of what the Railroad Commission was doing was was working to kind of defend the PR, the public relations of these these companies and, and kind of deflect the blame elsewhere as, as that went on. 
James, I want to ask you, I mean, you had another story today about the politics of this. And, you know, I just particularly see Greg Abbott coming out here and saying, I guarantee the lights will stay on heading into a primary and, you know, an election year basically for him. That seems like a pretty risky proposition for him. What? How do you kind of see this playing out politically over the next year? Yeah, we pointed that out in the story. Um, I think how it plays out, at least for the next couple of months, especially as it starts getting colder, um, Democrats are going to beat this drum as much as they can, especially when people are cold and shivering. And if there's any semblance of power outages um, or ERCOT calling for conservation, there's going to be concern and people are going to be out for blood, frankly. Voters voters want that accountability. Um, and so I think for the next couple of months, that's what we're going to see from Democrats in particular. They've had a very rough year. Uh, they lost on abortion. They lost on voting rights. They've lost on gun laws. This is basically one of the only things that they have where they can be successful and they can point to uh, Republican failures as they describe them. And I think ge- generally, as, as the general public des- uh, describes them as failures, because 60 percent of the people in our poll in October said that they were unsatisfied um, with the job that state leaders had done. Only 18 percent approved. That is not great. Um, so I think Democrats, this is the smart move. We pointed out some political scientists saying that this is a, a good move for them to be making. It's one of the only really levers that they can pull on. Um, and by contrast, for for Republicans, particularly for Governor Abbott, um, it is a it is a gamble here. Um, you are betting that the lights are not going to go off over the next couple of months. You are betting that we are not going to have a repeat of the scenarios that happened uh, last February, um, that there's not going to be a once once in a hundred year storm, um, that these natural gas operators are going to get signed up to be critical infrastructure. Um, and that, you know, think so, about the pressure. Yeah, right. Think and, about the and pressure and going on behind the scenes, the phone calls. Exactly. And, and that's, that's a great point, uh, Karen, because, because like, I think it is actually a pretty good bet. Um, because it was a very unlikely storm. I mean, I, I, I've only been here in, in Austin eight years, but I'd never seen a storm, uh, a winter storm like what we saw last year in, in February. Um, and also you have to think about the fact that there have been some updates that ERCOT's going to be on pins and needles, that the PUC is going to be on pins and needles, the Railroad Commission. They're already starting to get the critical infrastructure paperwork lined up. None of those natural gas companies, as Karen is pointing out, wants to be the one that this <laughs> happens again next February. And they say, these guys, again, were not prepared. Nobody wants to be those guys. I think, Mitchell, in your story, you pointed yeah. out that Vistra is already weatherized. Right, some of their some of their plants, and that's the responsible thing to do. It's not only the responsible thing to do; I think it's the right fiduciary move because you don't want to be that guy. Well, the- yeah, I mean, you're right. As you know, as, as soon as Abbott said, "I guarantee it," you know, his people were on the phone going, "You better not make him regret saying that." Oh, I think I think Karen, he was he was on the phone tactic. before that. I think before he started making I'm about those to say this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's the, it is certainly a risk and it's a bet 
for Governor Abbott to be saying, I can guarantee the lights are going to stay on. But, you know, the governor hasn't been in in Texas politics for nearly 20 years without without rarely ever making a mistake uh, by going off and doing things being unprepared and just being off the cuff. This is a governor who is like a really strong behind the scenes guy. He he doesn't say things just willy nilly. There's like a plan that's been laid out. There's been multiple steps that we don't always know about. So I think it's a pretty good bet. And it would really it. And, and that's why he's so confident in making those pronunciations, I think. Now, if something does happen, I think that that would really blow up not only in his face, but I think in the face of the entire GOP leadership and that you better believe that the Democrats who are making this an issue and going on the campaign trail throughout the next couple of months over the primary, if something goes wrong, even a tiny little glimpse, even a small semblance of what happened last February, you better believe that those Democrats are going to be ready to pounce on that. James, I have a question about the governor. Uh, the, the February storm and the power grid failure could we've reported that it could exceed Hurricane Harvey as the costliest natural disaster in in state history. And after Harvey in 2018, I th- I'm pretty sure Senator Ted Cruz, when he was running for re-election, basically shaped his entire campaign around Harvey recovery, right? Like, I'm pretty sure he it was like called tough as Texas. Why isn't Governor Abbott leaning in to this disaster? I think it's I think it's a tough thing. I I don't think that they want to talk about it, right? Because the reality is that they haven't done as or didn't do as much as they could. And the things that they did do haven't gone as far as people would like. I think there's realistic reasons for that not happening, Mitch, which you pointed out in your stories, uh, particularly Kurt Morgan is like it's it's not easy. You don't just flip a switch and everything's weatherized. I mean, these are these are companies that operate all over the state. It's expensive. You got to factor in which ones you want to do that to. So I think there's good reasons for that. But nonetheless, voters don't want to hear that. Voters want to hear, hey, your lights are not going to go off again. Um, And so to the extent that's the reason why Governor Abbott is saying that. But he doesn't want to dwell on that issue because it's too easy for his opponents, not just Democrats, but we've also seen uh, former state senator Don Huffines and a former Republican Party chair, Alan West, who are opposing him in the Republican primary, say this has not gone far enough. Um, The grid has not been weatherized. So it's not a good sandbox for him to be playing in, really. He's just going to get attacked. He's being attacked from the left and the right. um, And the answers are not sufficient. They're not adequate for what the voters want, which is a a straight up guarantee and a guarantee that's not going to sound like, well, you know, I'm just saying this because I need to say this, but like an actual guarantee that has a lot of um, facts to back it up. And I, I don't think that that there are enough uh, that there is enough legislation to make voters feel comfortable um, that 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 we we are in better shape. So I think that's the reason why Republicans are not campaigning and why Democrats are. Yeah. He's he's praying it's, it's for a mild to draw winter. A, yeah, that's right. And, and it's also just hard to draw a straight line from damage to a hurricane to state leaders, right? Like a hurricane is a major natural disaster. Um, you know, and uh, that it cannot really be controlled by the government. You also, of course, can't control an Arctic blast. But, you know, there are a lot of other states out there that have snowstorms that uh, that that keep the power on. And, you know, the state has a much more direct responsibility for the power grid. You know, I think one thing that I am almost sort of kind of dreading about this winter and the political discussion around this is that, 
Okay, so if we get a situation where another big storm like this happens and we have to do rolling blackouts or, or even worse, have like a crisis like we had in February, you know, that's that's pretty simple. Like the, you know, I think uh, Abbott and whoever else being would, would rightfully be skewered for, for not having done enough to prevent that quickly. But I mean, there are a lot of other scenarios here too. I mean, you know, it there's always a winter storm somewhere in Texas every winter, you know? I mean, I remember being in Dallas, living in Lake Highlands and uh, having a newborn baby and an ice storm coming and knocking out the power at my house for three days. And the reason the power went out had nothing to do with ERCOT or the grid. It was because that neighborhood in Lake Highlands has above ground power lines and uh, the kind of trimming of the trees around those lines uh, was not sufficient and a lot of tree branches fell down and kind of knocked out power and the the weight of the ice on those lines you know and those are more city and local power utility responsibilities than something the state is responsible for i mean i guess you could make an argument that the state could impose more regulations on those groups to to prevent that but but ultimately you know the city is the one that's kind of governing those right-of-ways and the power companies are maintaining those lines but i could definitely see a situation where something like that happened and someone like beto o'rourke or don huffines or something being like look at what abbott you know abbott did it again you're sitting in the dark again where there's not that responsibility on the other hand i could see a situation where you know there's an ice storm in lubbock which you know pretty much happens every year or or even an ice storm in in in, in another city and and it causing kind of a victory lap among republican leaders being like look we kept the power on we said we would do it when in reality that's like a different scale than like a statewide weather event that really tests the you know if it's still like 60 degrees in houston but really cold in the panhandle like the the grid is going to be able to handle that pretty easily and that won't necessarily be proof that all the problems have been fixed but i think i think you're right because i think you know, and I think we pointed this out in our story, but if we get through the winter, if we get to spring without any major outage, like that is a win already. And that's why that bet by the by the governor and by Republicans is so good, uh, because basically what you're betting on is status quo, that what happened, uh, a major blackout that has never happened before is not going to happen again. Um, really, the only win for Democrats is if there's any semblance of what we saw last year. But I think that, you know, you mentioned rolling blackouts. And I started twitching. I just got like some some trauma from last year. Like, And I think you're right. I mean, I think any type of rolling blackout, Democrats are going to use that uh, as a cudgel against Republicans. And voters will not care. Voters will, like I said, voters are out for blood. They want accountability. Anything that, that happens, like they're not going to differentiate between city and county and local officials and, and, and the state officials who have guaranteed now, as you pointed out, that the lights are going to stay on. They're not going to care for, for, for that differentiation. And that's really, I think, what the Democrats are counting on. Sorry, Mitchell, did I cut you off? Okay, Mitchell, so... Uh, so I want to ask Mitchell a question. I, I hope this isn't too uh, difficult of a question, Mitchell, because I'm putting you on a spot with something unexpected. But, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we just gave James chills talking about the power possibly being out. I think that people are going to be on high edge, right? Like, you know, uh, they're just kind of worried going into the summer because that was such a traumatic event for so many people last year. So... 
eventually we will get some kind of cold weather here in Texas, I assume. You know, it's 70 degrees now, but it probably won't stay that way all through the winter. So what are the things that people need to be looking for? Like, when should we start to worry? Or, or what are the signs that, that, you know, something could be going in a troubling way if, 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 if winter weather does come to Texas? It, it's, it's the scale of the weather, right? I mean, the, the, I feel like the, the unprecedented part of last year was that all 254 counties experienced cold, like legitimately cold weather um, and, and not just like an isolated area. It's truly the weather. And our, our colleague, Ross Ramsey, I think the headline of his column the other day kind of nailed it is like that the governor's kind of betting on like the weather forecast. Um, and, and that's ultimately what happened, right? I mean, people crank when it gets cold, people will, there will be more demand for power on the grid when people crank their heat at home. And, and that's really what it comes down to. Uh, you know, some changes have been made, not enough changes have been made, but ultimately this kind of comes down to the weather and, uh, and the scale of, of, and the scale of it, uh, you know, um, the management aspect of the grid of course matters, um, and, and the preparations and, and having enough power on, you know, available to call on. Um, that's part of the, part of the, the curse of the, of this, you know, deregulated market that we electricity market that we live in is that, uh, um, there's not just plentiful reserves available all the time because that kind of defeats the competitive nature of the market. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's ultimately, it's, it's about, it's about the weather. All right. Well, we will, uh, eagerly watch the forecast even more so than we normally do. All right, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors. Educate Texas stimulates creative solutions to key educational challenges throughout the state. Learn more at edtx.org. And Texas Hospital Association Foundation. Join the Texas Hospital Association February 8th and 9th for its hybrid conference designed for Texas healthcare leaders. Register at thaorg conference. So the other thing folks uh, might have reason to worry about heading into December and heading into 2022 is a new variant of the coronavirus. Omicron is uh, not in Texas yet, but or at least uh, has not been found in Texas yet. Uh, whether or not it's actually here, I think is a different question. And maybe if we're continuing to talk about betting, it may might actually be a safe bet to say that it is here. But as of now, it has not been tested. It is a variant of concern um, among international authorities, and it is something that has been found elsewhere in the United States. Karen, what do we know about this variant and what don't we know at this point in time? Um, what we know is a short list compared to what we don't know. But what we know is that it appears to be uh, contagious, uh, fairly highly so. Um, and that's not even a certain, that's just indicators being as such. Um, we don't know how severe it is. Um, we, by we, I, the general public, but really it's the scientists, right? Because they're the ones who, who know. Um, so the scientists don't know, um, you know, how severe it is. There are some signals that the symptoms are milder, uh, perhaps, or at least mild so far. Um, 
you know, it, we don't know how uh, effective the vaccines are against it. However, um, the ones who are being hospitalized in South Africa, for example, where there's a high instance of it at the moment that's been detected, um, and I want to make sure all those qualifiers are clear. We still don't know where it originated, but we're tracking the ones in South Africa. And they're sending people to the hospital who are unvaccinated, but the cases that are popping up in the United States are mild cases of people who have been vaccinated. Other, other places around the world, it's kind of a, it's a, a similar story for the ones who are vaccinated. So it seems to be behaving similar to Delta in that way, um, but they don't know how, they don't, they don't know anything close to how effective vaccines are against it beyond you know, what I just said. Um, it, takes, it takes a long time. It, it'll take weeks and months uh, to figure out the efficacy of the vaccines. It'll take longer than that to figure out, for example, the death rate or the, or the severity of it. Um, because what you have to do is find a, find a patient, figure out that they had Omicron, um, which is not readily available in the test. It takes sequencing and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and then follow them through to their clinical, you know, outcome. And, and uh, that can take a long time. Um, so, you know, just about everything that matters about this virus, I mean, this variant is on the list of what we don't know. Um, uh, but one thing that is apparent so far at least um, is that it doesn't seem to have any kind of crazy death rate you know or or some weird outstanding symptom although the symptoms seem to be a little bit different just based on the anecdotes um, so that's what we know and what we don't know uh, it's in five states in the united states so far it's been identified in five states um, we're expecting it to pop up in texas any day now um, on the on the radar, everybody, everybody on the leading edge of the uh, virology and epidemiology community in Texas already thinks it's here. So, sure, yeah, and you know, at this point, right, your story mentioned that you know there's there's a limited amount of uh, sequencing that's being done, you know, in Texas to identify what strain of people test positive for you, right? You can't just do that from a regular test, and you know, as of recently, basically 100% of those tests have found the Delta variant, right? Like basically right now we're in a time where that is the dominant kind of variant in the state. Right. It's the, it's the only one these with maybe a alpha here and there that was like left over from, you know, January. So kind of, you know, popping up occasionally, but but 99.99% of, of samples are still being sequenced as Delta. And it's a, it's a, what we're talking about when we say that is that it's when, you know, a, a sampling of positive tests. Some operations like Houston Methodist and their system and UT Health in San Antonio, they're sequencing, you know, either all in the case of Harris or Houston Methodist or a sizable part in the case of San Antonio, um, and a little bit smaller at Texas A&M, although I think they're about to ramp up a lot. Um, you know, that's what they're sequencing is, you know, a percentage of those positive COVID tests. Um, because Houston Methodist has had such a robust operation going on for so long, and they're in kind of an international large metro area, there's, you know, the, the money out in the, you know, in the in the Twitter sphere within this community is on the first, you know, the Omicron variant being identified first by in the Houston area, but that's just because of who's doing the sequencing and the size of the operation there. The state itself hasn't been doing much at all. 
the CDC does about 6% of positive cases in the state, which is fairly large um, from what I'm told. Um, but the, the state just is starting up this partnership this week with a bunch of universities and, and labs across the state, including like frontier counties in far west Texas and rural areas that currently aren't getting any sequencing done of theirs unless they specifically ask for it. Um, and so that's about to really kind of change the game on variant hunting in Texas. And that was in the works before Omicron ever showed up on the radar. All these operations were already in existence. So that's, it's all very interesting. It, you know, it's easy to get into like a deep dive into the science. And it's really interesting to me that it's such a, uh, it's becoming such a household word, the variant and, and genomic sequencing and, and, and things like that. Um, and maybe that's just my perspective, but, uh, you know, more and more people are, are, are learning what that means. Yeah, for sure. And I think people just really hope and don't want this to mean, you know, a, a another big resurgence. You know, one of the things that, of course, is possible here is that, you know, the correct me if I'm wrong on this, Karen, but one of the kind of traditional ways that, that viruses work is oftentimes they mutate into a, or they evolve into a less uh, extreme version of the virus because like, you know, with the flu, for instance, a bad strand of the flu is going to keep more people at home, you know, laid down at their house and not out, you know, spreading the virus around. So the like less, uh, you know, or a cold or things like that, the less the less severe versions might actually have a better chance of kind of spreading and gaining traction. So that's I mean, exactly that could right. Be a scenario where this could be a good thing, right? Where like if, if this is indeed a less severe version of the virus, which we are still a very, very long way from really being able to say either way, though, but like that could be one hope for a, a sign of progress in this virus if a less severe strand become begins to spread right and if it and if it can knock out any other variants that come after it is the thing right so the thing about delta is that it was you know two or three times more virulent than the original and more so than the one that overtook the original in january nothing has been able to knock out delta um so if this could knock out delta and then keep keep in the top spot, you know, and while everybody gets vaccinated so that any other mutations go down and it's a milder case, so it doesn't send everybody to the hospital, then yeah, that's a, one of the, one of the kind of the wish list scenarios, given that it probably won't be eradicated entirely anytime soon, if ever. Um, you know, a virus's primary directive is to survive and if it instantly kills its hosts you know i don't care how virulent it is it has no it's like it you know cuts off its you know path to you know forward so um it's uh, you're exactly right there there are scenarios in which you know the mutant mutation could weaken the pandemic and kind of naturally bring it to a point where we're trying to control it like we do the flu every year um but you're also right in that we're a very long way away from that, making that assessment. What we do know is it's not like dropping people, you know, instantly. Um, I think we would all notice that when that doesn't seem to be happening. Sure. Sure. So is there anything Texas can or should be doing, or is it basically just sit back and observe and see, see what happens with this? Well, you know, 
the hospitals are really is the is the ground zero for all this, right? If a bunch of people get sick and they don't go to the hospital, you know that that impact, you know, while it's you know kind of sucks, it's it's not something that the state, you know, that's going to strain resources. But um, the hospitals are already preparing for another surge um, over the winter, just in case it happens, because numbers are rising in the West, and those are all being attributed to Delta. There is sequencing going on of these, and Omicron, as you know, has not popped up as a cause of these numbers that have been climbing in the recent weeks. And by that, I mean, you know, West Texas, El Paso, which is kind of closer to New Mexico in the, in, in the, in the pandemic trends we've noticed. Um, Colorado, you know, and north of that, along kind of that mountain range west area, we're seeing a spike again. Um, and that's all Delta. And so Texas is watching that closely because the numbers started going up after Halloween. They started climbing over the holidays. Um, you know, there's waning immunity from the vaccine. So now we've got this push to, to booster. Um, and there's only about 20% of fully vaccinated Texans are boosted at this point. Um, so you could, they're, they're already prepared. And, and so to answer your question, what that means is they're making sure they've got the staffing, you know, they're kind of keeping an eye on the trends They're As far as the state goes, they're waiting to hear from the hospitals, but there's nothing special that they're doing for Omicron, you know, or anything like that. Um, they already kind of were on high alert for the holidays. New York has declared a state of emergency to free up capacity. I don't know how that works in Texas necessarily. I don't see the governor doing anything like that though. So um, I guess status quo until things all hit the fan again. <laughs> That's how we're preparing for it at this juncture. Yeah, one thing that really struck me from reading your article uh, that you wrote about this this week was seeing the spokesperson for the Texas Department of State Health Services basically saying vaccination remains our best prevention tool. You know, the, really what, what we should be doing right now is trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Um, yeah, that's a drum that they're yeah. all banging to. Everybody I talked to said that, you know, the epidemiologists yeah. in San Antonio and Houston and at Texas A&M, they're all like, vaccination is going to, is going to be how we beat this. You know, it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to mutate itself out of existence. So we just, we really need to get people vaccinated because we just don't know what's coming. I mean, it's funny this summer we were talking about Delta as the end all be all. And then we were like, well, and whatever comes after Delta and everyone's like, Oh no, what something's coming after Delta. Well, here it is. But what about after that? You know, I mean, what if Omicron kind of fades into the distance, like a couple of these others have, and then something else shows up, you know, if, as long as you've got low, you know, you've still got some countries where there's, you know, less than 10% of people even getting their first shot yet, you know, um, and as long as they're, and while we don't know where Omicron originated, you know, for all we know it was here, but we don't know where it originated, um, you know, they're going to keep on popping up. It's going to keep on. So really the message from the top all the way down, and by the top, I mean, you know, world health leaders, um, all the way down to the very local level is that vaccinations is, is, the thing that you can do as an individual in a family to, to stop it. And, you know, I guess as long as the mutations respond to the vaccine, that's true. Can I, can I just say something, uh, Matthew? Uh, I, I just want a, a, a small appreciation post of my colleague, uh, Karen here, just because if, if you're anything like me, I was sitting there uh, over Thanksgiving break with my family and getting the alerts from the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Associated Press that there's this new Omicron variant coming out of South Africa, and it scared the bejesus out of me, and I was real worried about, like, what's going to happen, and over the next couple of days, you know, 
information has slowly been trickling out, but I've still been worried. And Karen's article this week just answered a bunch of my questions just about, you know, just as she's laid out today during TripCast. But I encourage everyone to go read it just because it's such a thorough primer of like what we know so far, what we don't know, the steps you should be taking, um, like the precautions you can take with that acknowledgement that we still don't know everything and that, you know, <laughs> there's a limited amount of things that we can do and that Delta really is. But it was just such a, it really put me at ease as, as much as you can be at ease about a global pandemic um, because, you know, the steps that I've taken to, to, to make sure that I'm safe and that my family is safe is just the stuff that she had already pointed out in her article. And it just put me a lot more at ease about this Omicron uh, variant. And while there's still a lot more to be um, learned, I guess, about it, it's like, hey, let's just take it one step at a time. And I just I can't say enough about how how highly I thought of that, Karen. And it's uh, just an appreciation post from me to you, I guess. <laughs> Thanks, James. That means a lot. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad it was useful. Um, we really don't want to scare anybody, yes, but situational uh, awareness is key. So thanks for the kudos. Very much so. All right. I think that is all the time we have for this week. Thank you to Karen, James, and Mitchell. Thank you to Michael Ray, our producer. And thank you to our sponsors, Good Reason Houston, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, Educate Texas, and the Texas Hospital Association Foundation. We'll talk to you all next week. Do it, do it.